Well, the purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior and that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. So let's open our Bibles to John's gospel. Our text for this morning is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Again, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles from a chair near you, you'll find our text beginning on page 906. So if you're using one of those blue Bibles, our text is on 906. And so we've been moving through these moments in John's narrative, these, these world-shaping and time-changing moments. We saw the trial last week. We witnessed the crucifixion, now the resurrection. The darkest day followed by the most glorious day. The day when the light of the world dispelled the darkness and marched out of a grave, triumphant and victorious, having conquered sin and death. The resurrection, dear church, is our reason for hoping in this life and for the life to come. Yes, our Lord Jesus died. Yet, had he stayed dead, we would have no hope. And there'd be no good news for any sinner anywhere. But praise be to the God of our salvation, who sent his Son, who had the authority to lay his life down for sinners, and today we see has the authority and the power to take his life up again in glorious resurrection. Jesus died and rose again. The power of hell is overthrown. Our God is merciful to us and merciful in Christ alone. Let's read together John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran. And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that, scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Seeing is believing. You know, I actually couldn't find the origin of the phrase seeing is believing. Some say it arises from Greek times or perhaps earlier. It apparently first appeared in print in 1639. But some actually see its origin later in this chapter of John's gospel where Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But what I did find was a 1972 song from the king himself. That's right. None other than Elvis sang a song called Seeing is Believing. And it's catchy. I loved it. You should totally Spotify or app, whatever you do on the way home, sing with the king. Well, the little K king on the way home. It is maybe not, it's, it's not the best sound theology. Let me be honest. But I doubt a few, few of us, if any of us, are going to the Elvis song catalog for theological instruction. But he sings out, if I ever had cause to doubt him, I don't doubt him anymore. Because seeing, seeing, seeing is believing. And I see him everywhere. You see, Elvis, Elvis is actually recognizing that doubt sometimes rises in the hearts and minds of people. Particularly believers. But he sings that sight dispels doubt. And in our text from this week and next, we actually are going to see various expressions of disbelief. We're going to see different forms of doubt. But we're going to see them being dispelled by seeing the Lord Jesus risen from the grave. Now you may be thinking, what good does that do me? I can't see Jesus right now. But here's my argument. I would argue that you can see Jesus through the eyes of the men and women in our text and through a spirit-illuminated imagination. You know, last week I noted how many non-Christians assume that Christianity is a religion of blind faith. But church, hear me. Christianity is a religion of faith. But our faith is by no means a blind faith. And John, just like last week, puts an overwhelming emphasis on what is seen in this chapter and how faith and sight are not opposed to one another, but are complementary. John makes eight explicit references to looking or seeing in these verses. So I want us to look together at the text and see what John shows us. So first... Let's look at the empty tomb. Look at the empty tomb. So John begins with this detail that it was the first day of the week. So the Passover, Sabbath, had come and gone. And now on the third day, which was the first day of the week, we see a lone grieving disciple 
going to the burial tomb of her Lord. And it's telling that John notes that it's early. Did you notice that in the text? Came to the tomb, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. I think there's something of humanity in that little detail. I mean, many of us have walked through times and seasons where sleep escapes us. Where we try to keep the darkness at bay, even though it feels like it's not only outside of us, but it's inside of us. We're just trying to sleep. And yet, because of overwhelming sorrow, pain, sleep escapes us. Mary rises early to go to the spot where the worst day of her life ended. And they put her Lord into the tomb. Yet when she arrived at the tomb, as we see in our text, she is greeted by what is in her mind a horrific sight. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And notice her first response is panic. It's not faith. It's not belief. She assumes that something nefarious has taken place. And listen again to her report to the disciples. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Who is they? Well, John doesn't actually tell us, but it's not hard to conclude that she's referring broadly to the Jewish leaders and the Roman executioners. Jesus' opponents, his enemies, have taken him. She's talking about them, those who oppose Jesus, and her default assumption when she sees this empty tomb is not to understand, oh yes, he told us that he would rise from the dead. No, he, he said those things, but that wasn't clicking with, with Mary at this, at this point. For Mary, the most plausible explanation at this point, what she saw with her eyes was a despicable form of thievery. And that's not irrational. Let's not be hard on Mary here. Grave robbing was fairly commonplace in this society. I mean, let's enter into the story. Just try enter into the story alongside Mary. She is distraught, emotionally exhausted. She's likely physically exhausted, exhausted and feeling spiritually adrift. In her state, it is no surprise that her first conclusion, however rational, is wrong. I mean, think about your own life. How often are you prone to miss what Jesus is doing in your life and around you because you're simply blinded by emotional turmoil or sorrow or you're tired and weary in every way? I'm not trying to guilt you or weigh you down, but I want you to see that your sorrows and your pains, though real, are not what ultimately define your life. If you're a Christian, Jesus defines your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, his death and resurrection are the reorienting realities of your life. So maybe, maybe take a, a lesson from Mary here and, and learn not to always assume your first instinct on any situation is correct. I mean, right, we agree our, with ourselves more than anybody else in the world, right? We assume that we are correct 100% of the time. Maybe you're not. Mary wasn't. Maybe when we encounter difficulties in our life, 
We need to lean in with eyes of faith to try and see how Jesus is working in the midst of our trials and circumstances. And Mary's not alone in this. We actually come upon a bit of a foot race here in the text. I don't know if you're picking up on that. We see Peter and John running to the tomb. And we know from previous texts that John doesn't use me or I, but refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there is something in this text that I love. And it's in verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John forever wants you to know, I won. Like, I won the race. <laughs> he beat Peter. I mean, even noting, like, hey, we started out together. We were running together at first. But let the reader understand and the record show, John beat Peter to the tomb. I mean, I have no trouble believing the Bible has humor in it. The Lord is a God of joy and happiness, and he created laughter. So it's not irreverent to see humor where it is. And even though I think we can see as John reflected, as the Spirit inspired him to write this down, thinking back on this amazing day, that moment when they were running, that wasn't a fun race. This was panic. John outsprints Peter to the tomb because like Mary, they are panicked by what they heard. They don't know what's going on. They are frantically running to see what has taken place. John, though arriving first, stops short of entering into the tomb. But we're told that he looks inside. He looks. And he doesn't find Jesus. Peter, in keeping with everything we know about him, runs right into the tomb. But he sees the same thing. Jesus isn't here. These disciples, Mary, John, and Peter, are confronted with a jarring reality. And they have perplexing questions that only increase with what John and Peter notice. That's the second thing I want us to look at. Look at the empty linens. Look at the empty linens. Verses 5, 6, and 7 mention the presence of linens in the tomb. The, the tomb was certainly empty of the Lord Jesus, but the tomb was not completely empty. The burial dressings were present in the tomb. And in verse 7, the addition of the face cloth is mentioned. But John notes specifically that the cloth was not with the linens altogether, but folded up near them. Why all of this detail? Well, two reasons come to mind. First, there are times when we see something that is so stunning and so mind-bending that the image is frozen into our mind. The details are as crisp and as vivid as the moment themselves or when the event happened. I mean, can you see this happening to John in this moment? And with the aid of the Spirit inspiring his gospel account, the details are vividly recounted here. Secondly, remember what we saw last week and we learned from John's methodology. Remember last week, we, John wanted you to know Jesus was really dead. He was really, really dead. 
The evidence and the actions of everybody surrounding the crucifixion verify beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus really died. Now, John is again piling up details and evidence so that you and I understand that just as Jesus was truly dead, he is now truly alive. And before he moves to this, what this new reality means for us, he lingers on the evidence. And he piles up for us this foundational reality that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus actually happened. It really happened. And he does it with linens and a face cloth. I mean, you see, if the grave had been robbed, if Jesus had been stolen, there would be no linens and no face cloth. Those were the items the thieves would steal. They were the valuables that were left in the grave. Not to mention the spices that would have been with the body. Those were valuable as well. The only thing, listen, the only thing that's of no value to a grave robber is what? The body. Right? For a thief, the only thing that is of waste in a grave is the corpse. That's the thing that nobody wants, even grave robbers today. Yet these men look into the tomb and examine what their eyes are seeing, and they cannot initially make heads or tails of it. Why steal the most worthless item in the tomb? We might even surmise that even his opponents, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, would not have left such valuable items in the tomb. And certainly if they had left them, they would not have left them so neatly in place. If this was their doing to try and crush this Jesus movement, they're defeating themselves. But the linens the face cloth, there in the tomb. Peter sees them. John sees them. And at least for John, something happens. Look at me again at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, again, just a little note, also went in. And he saw and believed. Friends, something awakened in John at that moment. Something fell into place in his mind and his heart at the sight of these burial dressings sitting empty in an empty tomb. John saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that his rabbi, his friend, and his Lord was risen from the dead. One commentator notes, most of the early witnesses came to faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, not because they could not find his corpse, but because they found Christ alive. But John testifies that he came to such faith before he saw Jesus resurrected. And he took this step, not simply because the tomb was empty, but because the grave clothes were still there. This doesn't make John better or more insightful, but rather this moment he recalls the message of Jesus taking root in his heart in a new and vibrant way. 
It's almost as if we could see, think, think about it. It's almost as if we could see John's face turn from sadness, frustration, and anger to joyful awe as he looks upon the clear evidence in the tomb. He's not dead. And he believes. He believes. He doesn't see Jesus, but the evidence of his resurrection is there right in front of him, and he believes. Friends, though John will see the risen Lord Jesus shortly, he does serve as a type of what we are as Christians today in this moment. We cannot see with our eyes the risen Jesus who is ascended at the right hand of the Father. But like John... We can see the undeniable evidence that Jesus rose from the grave, and like John, we believe. But we also see in this text that Peter doesn't have the same experience. We know from Luke 24, 12, that Peter leaves the tomb in a state of bewilderment. This is what Luke says. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, some scholars want to attribute this to a made-up rivalry between Peter and John. But that makes no sense, given the closeness of these two throughout the gospel accounts. What is actually happening is John is recording for us through this chapter vignettes of how the reality of Jesus' resurrection is impacting his followers in real time. I mean, John invites us into his own heart here. He declares to you and to me, he says, I, I saw and I believed. You know, sometimes we can downplay how significant it is to tell others how Jesus has actually changed us. But here, John gives us a bit of his own personal testimony. He encounters facts and a reality that he cannot explain this evidence outside of Jesus rising from the dead. And this new reality reorients his entire reality. And he believed Jesus in a new way. And, and he goes on to say that this moment of faith was apart from a full understanding of the resurrection from the scripture. Look at what verse 9 tells us. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John admits that he believed Jesus had risen in this moment, but he did not at that time realize that the resurrection of Jesus had been foretold throughout the scriptures. I mean, there's an echo of this in Luke 24. Maybe you remember the interaction that Jesus has with the two grieving disciples on the road to Emmaus. When questioned by Jesus, this is how the conversation goes. Moreover, these are the, the two disciples. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a walk. Right? Is there ever a walk you would you'd like to be on more than that one? Jesus himself resurrected, opening up the scriptures to two nameless, well, virtually nameless disciples and telling him how all the scriptures pointed to him. And John tells us here that it wasn't until later that their full comprehension of Jesus rising from the dead was according to the scriptures. But right now, right here, where we're at in John chapter 20, we see his beautiful, childlike faith. He saw and believed. Have you seen and believed? Have you seen and believed? I mean, this text calls every one of us to make a decision. And everyone right here, right now, is actually making a decision. You are doing it in real time. In your mind or your heart right now, you are saying either John is a fool and a liar, he's completely deceived at this moment, or he's telling the truth. There's no middle ground for anyone here right now in this text. You either believe John's testimony and his eyewitness account, or you don't. In this moment, you are either, all of you, all of us, we are either believing Jesus or believing John to be wrong or right. We believe him to be a credible witness, or he's been deceived, or worse, he's lying. There's no middle ground for any of us here today. So my question for you, for all of you, will you look with John at the grave linens and believe? Or will you turn away and convince yourself that this is all propaganda and tall tales? Nothing to see here. What do you see? Christians believe and know that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. To deny this, To claim that Jesus did not rise from the dead is to deny the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There is no subset of real Christianity that denies the resurrection. It is sub-Christian to claim Christ but deny that he rose bodily from the grave. There are plenty of non-Christians, maybe you, who are willing to believe that Jesus died on the cross. But the resurrection, that's just too far. Sadly, even many Christians look to the resurrection as that thing we celebrate with lots of pastel colors and candy. But hear me, if Jesus died and he didn't rise, we're damned. There is no salvation. Listen to the way Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That means it's meaningless. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep meaning died in Christ, have perished. 
if in Christ we have hope in this life only, listen to what Paul says, if, if all we got is a Jesus who died on the cross, here's what he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says if the resurrection didn't happen, we're fools. There were those in the Corinthian church who thought the idea of rising from the dead to be too foolish, too irrational. No person with real reason would believe in a person rising from the dead. And so the idea of the resurrection from the dead not being occurred isn't real had entered into this church. And Paul says, if you're right, that there's no resurrection, then there is no salvation. There is no eternal life. There is only eternal judgment. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we can be so arrogant about our intelligence and sophistication, right? We assume that we're just so much smarter and it's just really hard for the modern person to believe in a resurrection account. We assume of the people of Jesus' day, they are so much more gullible. They could be easily, they, they believe weird things, so of course they would believe that someone rose from the, from the dead. We assume that they're not as developed as we are. We, we assume that there was just more natural in this old society for people to believe and be convinced of the resurrection. It's more natural for them to believe miracles because they didn't have all of the technology and science and learning that we have. Yet the Bible plainly, and, and history plainly disproves and condemns such arrogance. I mean, we're going to see next week the deep skepticism of one of Jesus' own disciples. When all of his closest friends, they're all telling him, they're all saying, hey, no, 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 he really rose from the dead. And he's like, hmm, that's crazy talk. I mean, how many times in John's gospel have people been face-to-face -face with Jesus doing supernatural miracles right in front of them? And they're like, nah, I don't believe. I mean, to be a Christian means that you have both seen the reality of the resurrection and believed in the one who rose from the grave. It's not that you're not reasonable, that you're not using your brain but that your reason and your faith are working together as you trust in the living Christ. And we're going to deal with that a bunch more next week. The sermon would be like four hours. This is why we divided John 20 into two weeks, a double helping of goodness. Because here's the deal. I want you to realize, and I want to realize, that the resurrection of Jesus and the spread of the gospel the, the, the spread of the good news and the planting of churches all over the face of the earth, they make no sense apart from the resurrection. We can't even make sense of world history apart from Jesus rising from the dead. Furthermore, between this week and next week, I want you to be more confident in your own belief in the reality of Jesus rising from the dead. So trailer over, come back next week, even more good stuff on tap. But there's more to see here than the empty tomb and empty burial clothes. I want you to see, I want us to look at sorrow turning to joy. Look at sorrow turning to joy. The disciples returned to their homes, John believing, Peter still amazed and trying to work through the reality of what's happening. But Mary stays, still crushed. She's still hurting. 
And John says she is weeping beside the grave or beside the tomb. If you've ever been to a funeral or beside a grave or maybe you've even said goodbye to a loved one next to their casket, you know this kind of weeping. Mary is doubly grieved. She has witnessed the brutal death of her teacher and Lord and now it seems that even more indignity and wickedness has taken place through thieves stealing the corpse of the king. It is not hard for us, if we think about this, to understand this broken-hearted person sobbing in all of the pain and anger and grief that is just crashing on her soul in waves. But she's not left there. Her weeping eyes wander again inside the tomb to look. She sees something new. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. I imagine this had to be a jolt. She's been by the tomb the whole time, presumably while the disciples come and go, but somehow now there's two new beings in the tomb, and John tells us they are angels in white, but Mary has no clue. And these angels speak to her, verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? There's a gentle reproof of Mary here. There is in their question the assumption that by this point, Mary shouldn't be weeping. The grief is over. She has yet to grasp this reality, and she explains to these angels the source of her grief. She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She repeats her belief that the tomb had been infiltrated by robbers and the body is stolen. She still can't see. She can't see. Then she turns and sees Jesus, but doesn't recognize him. John's narrative is so gripping. If you're, if you're in the story and reading this, it's, he draws us into this moment. We're, we're looking through Mary's eyes. He tells us that Jesus addresses her, but she sees him, but doesn't see him. Literally, John says, she didn't know it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Again, the gentle reproof this time from the words of the risen Lord right there in front of her. Why are you weeping? For Jesus... And soon for Mary, the time for weeping had passed. But in this moment, her sadness, her sobbing is completely justified in her mind. And her response at this point is to ask this guy directly, did you do this? Did you do this? Tell me where you put him and I'll go and get him. And again, friends, you should be used to this right now. John's irony is before us. 
all over the place. Jesus is in front of her, and she's so confused that she asks Jesus what he did with Jesus. Like, like she doesn't understand what's happening. And in a sense, Jesus did do something with the body. He rose from the grave. But Mary, though she is seeing Jesus risen from the grave, she's blind to him. She doesn't see him. Now, there's all sorts of theories for, for why she didn't recognize him. The tears, her distraction, or her grief. And John doesn't give us a definitive answer for, for why she doesn't understand in this moment that it's Jesus. We do know this, that Jesus' resurrection body was different. Listen to how D.A. Carson describes this. He says, On the one hand, Jesus' resurrection body can be touched and handled. It bears the marks of wounds inflicted on Jesus' pre-death body. And not only cooks fish, but eats it. On the other hand, Jesus' resurrection body apparently rose through the grave clothes. It appears in a locked room and is sometimes not at least initially recognized. Whatever the reason for her blindness at the moment, did you see how one word removed her blindness and gave her sight? Jesus said to her, Mary. He says her name. Jesus calls her by name. And that sound washes the earthly sorrow from her eyes. The Savior is there. He's alive in front of her. Her darkest night dispelled by the brightest dawn. The sunrise of this morning could not compare with the risen Son of God, who is the joyous light right in front of her. And it's breaking into her darkened heart. I mean, Jesus said in John 10, verses 2, 4, 2 through 4, he says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and what? He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary, one of the Lord's precious sheep, hears her name and recognizes that's the shepherd. That's my shepherd. And at that sound, at that sound, her sorrow turns to joy. Like that. And this is true of every sinner who hears the voice of Jesus call their name. I mean, church, isn't this true of us? Isn't it true of you? Brother or sister here, is there anything that compares with that sound when you hear the Savior utter your name? No, it's not audible as with Mary, but when through the Holy Spirit, your heart and your mind are awakened to the sound of Jesus through his word calling your name, it's glorious. And beloved, isn't it glorious that he not only calls us once to believe in him, but he is our daily bread and our constant shepherd, speaking to us by name. How great is our Savior? And Mary is ecstatic. She goes from, from the heights of grief or the depths of grief to the heights of simply uh, ecstasy. She is beyond ecstatic. She erupts with joy, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognizes Jesus and her joy is spilling out. You know, I, I'm a sucker for homecoming videos. You know these things, right? 
You know the ones where the soldier returns from deployment and surprises the family? When it's a spouse, it is, it is beautiful. But the ones that really do me in are the ones with little kids. If these show up in any of my social media feeds, 100% stopping to watch. Always. And this text reminded me of one I saw last week where a father surprised his sleeping son. The boy had no idea his daddy was home. So the dad goes into the bedroom and he silently starts like shaking the boy's shoulder. And the kid groans and mumbles about not wanting to get up, right, mom and dad, right? You ever had this? The dad keeps nudging him. And the boy turns and looks and stops for a second as his brain catches up with what's happening. His brain catches up with his eyes and he starts to say, Daddy, Daddy. And he jumps out of the bed into the arms of his dad and holds on with tears of joy and sheer happiness that his dad was home, his father's home. And usually when I watch these videos and right now I'm talking through it, become a blubbering mess. The tears come easy because they're beautiful. This is beautiful. It speaks to our humanity and our need. Now, now, imagine if the child had grieved their father or mother's death. They'd seen the casket, attended the funeral. Imagine the separation from their dad or their mom was not just geographical distance or borders, but the very border of life and death. Imagine that reunion. The sorrow replaced with shock, disbelief, and overwhelming joy. Mary is overwhelmed with Jesus' life such that most agree, she, she starts to cling to Jesus. Some say, his feet, you just we, for joy, just, just can't believe, and she's starting to grab him. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. He's not being mean or unkind. Rather, he's helping Mary understand that his resurrection means that she does not have to cling to him physically. But soon her relationship with him, with him will, will take the shape of faith, that she will know Jesus not by physical touch, but by faith in him. And that will be more real than even this moment she's experiencing right now. One scholar describes this interaction saying, Jesus did not object to being touched. Otherwise, how can we explain his words to Thomas? In verse, in verse 27 of this chapter. What he condemned was Mary's mistaken notion that the former mode of fellowship was going to be resumed. In other words, that Jesus would once again live in daily visible association with his disciples, both men and women. The fellowship, to be sure, would be resumed, but it would be far richer and more blessed. It would be the communion of the ascended Lord in the Spirit with his church. Mary didn't need to cling to Jesus. No, she actually had a job, a commission. Jesus commissions her to go, to tell the disciples and spread the news of his, reaction, his resurrection. And she does what her teacher says. She hears his voice and follows him in obedience. And this testimony of the disciples is, is as glorious as it is simple, right? The last verse of our text, 
verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. We see with Mary, the risen Lord Jesus, and we watch as Mary and Jesus interact and we see her sorrow turn to joy and that joy fuel her desire to do what the Lord says. And we see joy fueling her boldness as she with joy undeniable tells them the good news. His body has not been stolen. No one took it. I saw him. He's alive. Church, John wrote his gospel that you and I would believe in the risen Lord Jesus. That you would see him living perfectly, dying in your place for your sins, and then risen from the grave to turn your deepest sorrows to joy. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and blindness and looked upon Jesus, the risen king who came and will come again? This is the power of the resurrection for all who believe. The sorrows of this life are real. They are heavy. The darkness of this world is real. The reality is death is coming for all of us. And yet, for we who have trusted in Jesus, we know that death is not an enemy yet to be defeated. No. We see through the eyes of Peter and John and Mary the reality that even death could not destroy Jesus. No, church, through their eyes, we see that death has been destroyed by Jesus. And that every reason to cry with Mary, I have seen the Lord, is our reason to say, we have seen him too. And we'll see him again. Maybe you know the artist Trip Lee. He raps about this powerfully. He says, I know I'm going to suffer, and that'll only make me tougher. Death is just a doorway to take me to my faithful lover. Church, Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's at the right hand of the Father, even now, from which he will return as judge and king. He will come to gather all his children to be with him forever. This is why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not just looking backwards. We're looking forward. Yes, the bread and the cup symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for us, but they also remind us that though he died, he did not stay dead. But he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and church, he will come again for us. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The risen king will come for us. He has not abandoned us and he will never abandon us. That's what we celebrate every Lord's Day when we take the supper.